And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Augie Nost, author, on-air personality, seasoned aircraft pilot, hypnotherapist, UFO researcher, and cosmic explorer. He is a student of many sciences, including metaphysics, theoretical physics, and different forms and theories of spirituality. Augie hosts a weekly Universal Consciousness show and returns today to talk about the German flying discs. Augie, thanks for coming and welcome back. Well, thank you. Thank you. I have coffee in hand again and I'm ready to go. So uh, well, let's, let's have some fun. Yes. So, you know, I had a guest that is one of these people that some people call 20 and back where they were abducted and spent 20 years in the secret space program and came back. And I believe he said that the Germans in World War II had UFOs and made contact with the ETs. What do you know? Well, I think they're absolutely right because um, Germany or the... uh, the war machine, or the previous war machine, I should say, uh, they had their own Roswell in 1936. Mm, I didn't know that. There was a fairly large disc that crashed in Bavaria, in uh, southeastern Germany. And, uh, it, you know, 1936, the technologies uh, were somewhat limited and they didn't know what to do with it. They just tried to get into it, I guess. They, uh, f- according to Wendell Stevens, which I have a lot of my information from, he said they tried to get into it for some lengthy period of time. They couldn't get into it. And they finally did get in, and there's some controversy of what they found inside of it. But over the next uh, decade or so, they were able to back-engineer some of that because they found the drive system, which actually uh, was somewhat similar to some of the German flying discs, uh, the drive system in there, because it had the Mercury engine in it. And uh, for uh, we know this because there's German papers uh, mostly written in German before they were translated. And the translations is, uh, I'm a little careful with that because a lot of times things get skewed. If it's translated two or three times, then sometimes you lose some of the facts in it. But uh, we know that they did have the flying discs. We have the pictures, we have the testimonies. In fact, uh, when I grew up back in Norway, this is just a novelty I'm going to mention. Because on the farm back there, we had one farm worker that was a prisoner of war in Germany. And he said that he saw round aircraft flying in the skies over Germany. I remember him telling us that when I was back on the farm. And uh, that is one of the things that really got me interested in you know, UFOs and flying discs, because he explained that these had no propellers, no wings, no nothing, just a round disc. And that didn't make sense. So uh, that's one of the things that I discovered there. And um, another thing is that 
we believe from the papers and from my discussions with Wendell Stevens, Colonel Wendell Stevens, that is, which is probably the one person that knows more about the flying discs than anybody in the world. He researched it more. He went to Germany. He went to Switzerland talking about it, researching it. He went to South America looking for them. And he found some really incredible information as well as pictures. And um, I was able to, uh, you know, he lived in Tucson, so became, we became friends. And I interviewed him on my uh, one of my TV shows that I had in Tucson. In fact, you can see that TV interview on broadcastteamalpha.com where Nori and I have uh, a lot of videos all the way down to the bottom of the stream of videos. You will find an interview with myself and uh, Wendell, Colonel Wendell Stevens where he shows firsthand pictures of what he found from the all the way from the Vril, which is the early flying discs, all the way up to the Hanabu 4. That is the one that uh, it was very big. In fact, I have some notes from that. If you want to know some of the, uh, the stats on it, how fast it was and how it was built and stuff, I can read some of uh, these notes off to you. Well, you mentioned mercury. So are you saying that mercury is the fuel source? Well, partially. Because um, the mercury engine or the Thule engine, it was composed of two cylinders rotating in opposite direction. There were magnets inside of the outer uh, cylinder and, and magnets outside of the inner cylinder. And they were rotating opposite of each other. Between the two of them, there were liquid red mercury. And when you rotate magnets, you know, you create a plasma field. If you're rotating it close to another one, there, you can see a little light coming out of it. And uh, this somehow in reaction with the red mercury created an effect there. Uh, I don't know how to translate that. It's more like an, an um, gravity nullification effect, which can be directed. And that's how they create the propulsion system. And also uh, in the later Hanabu circular uh, flying disks, they also didn't have the um, the uh, the disc rotating in it. They used it. There was electromagnetic steering. So this rotating, uh, these two rotating discs, they created the nullification effect. And inside that plasma bubble around the disc, there everything inside of it was weightless. And that is why that we have pictures showing the flying discs sitting on the ground <clears throat> and upside down, screwed onto the bottom of it, was the turret of a panzer tank or a, 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 a tank with a cannon and everything on it because it was just screwed on underneath because it has no weight. Now, that thing is thousands of pounds of weight. 
but inside the bubble, it didn't have any weight. They just screwed it on and they used it as a, um, a weapon. Was it used in World War II? I don't know about the turret was used, but I know that um, Wendell Stevens told me that on one of the bombing raids that came out of England flying in over Germany, there were 800 bombers they sent out in one night. <coughs> and, you know, being at night, uh, they picked the night when it was, uh, you know, overcast, uh, high overcast. So there was hard to see anything. All the aircraft turned the lights off and unsynchronized the engines so that you could not pinpoint where they were. And they were flying in over Germany and bombed targets on the ground. In one night, they lost over a third of the bombers. And the way that happened, according to Wendell Stevens, is that they had the Hanabus coming, flying behind the fleet of aircraft. And they aimed a weapon at the aircraft. And that was a, they called it a pristron tube. Or uh, also another name for it was die Motorstoppel. With other words, the motor stopper. And <laughs> there was kind of like a, um, actually, I think it was a directional EM pulse. So when they aimed that at the aircraft, the EM pulse shut off the electric system. There went the engines and down went the aircraft. And they lost over a third of them in one night. And that's when the Allied forces realizes we're up against something here. We don't know what it is. We cannot control it. The only way we can win is by a ground invasion. And that's when they plan the Normandy invasion of Germany. Because uh, <clears throat> uh, one of the generals, uh, he was on record saying about a few months before the end of the war, and he says, we can still lose this war because they knew the Germans had something they didn't know what it was and it was deadly to the Allied forces. Now they back engineered the craft but do you think that they have ever made contact with the ETs and if so if they made some kind of deal? I don't know what kind of deal they made but back in uh, about the early 1920s there was a lady, she was um, um, part of the Tula Society, and uh, her name was Maria Ortisius. Uh, they call it Maria Ort uh, Orsic over here, but it was mm -hmm. Ortisius. And uh, she was a channel, and she said she channeled from somebody in the Aldebaran uh, star system. And uh, she was writing down what she channeled, and a lot of times she didn't have no clue what she wrote down. Equations, drawings and stuff that came to her, and she wrote it down. And most people, you know, in the beginning, they laughed at her, says, yeah, sure. And um, she was able to get those, some of those drawings in front of a military official that had a little clue on science. And he was looking at her drawings and he said, wait a minute, there is something here. So he took it to somebody and they realized that this uneducated 
20-year-old girl had come up with something that is so brilliant that their science scientists haven't thought of it yet. So they invited her in and they put her to work, create more. And they said that there was an invitation from somebody in the Aldebaran system. They sent the messages through her for her to show the, our society how to build a craft so we could go there and visit. Basically, that, that's what she said. Of course, the Germans had a different idea about the visitation. They wanted to use it for other things. <clears throat> but uh, this was perfected in coordination, I think, with what they found in Bavaria as well as what they found when they went to India and Tibet and were looking for old writings of technology and the occult. They found drawings of the Vimana, which, you know, there was the Rama Empire's flying ships. Mm -hmm. And uh, the drawings from those look totally different. They look like pyramids and they look in different ways. They don't look like flying discs, all of them. But the Vimana also had a Mercury engine. That is one of the commonalities between 9,000 years ago, actually probably 11,000 now, because some of the early writings that I found dates back nine to 12,000 years where they talk about the Vimanas as well as what they are built. And they also talk about the fact that people that flew those things a lot, they got sick from flying. it. Same thing with the German flying discs. The people that worked in the factories, they often got sick, especially what the ones that worked on the uh, Houndabu 3 and the Houndabu 4, because they did one big difference. They didn't use the, um, well, they did in the Houndabu 3, they used the mercury a lot, but they also, in the later stages of the building, they used D2O, deuterium, which is heavy water or radioactive water. And they put that in there instead of the mercury, which gave them a lot more power. They were able to, I, I mean, they talk about the Hanabu 3 here, <clears throat> 4,000, no, no, 40,000 kilometers an hour. How do they explain that? Right. Now, it, it did say actually 7 to 40,000, 7,000 to 40,000. That's on the Hanabu 3. And uh, <clears throat> it was a big craft, 71 meters or 300, and, no, no, 232 feet across, circular. They call it a tachyo, a tachyon, tachyonator. That's what they call it. Tachyonator 7C was the drive system in the later ones. And that went from, as a column, right through the middle of the craft from the very top to the very bottom. And um, and in my notes here from uh, Colonel Stevens here, I read that it, it had a steering system of as a magnetic field directional impulse is what he called it. 
and that had no gyroscope in it, which the early ones did to keep it level. And also the speed was 7,000 to 40,000 kilometers an hour. And uh, that's about 25,000 miles an hour, just about that. And uh, then the hull of the Halnebu, of all of the Halnebus actually, was double hull. And they had a cooling substance inside of which, which I don't know what was because Wendell Stevens never mentioned anything about that. <clears throat> it could be, I don't know, it could be several things. The Halnebu 3 had a crew of 32 people and it was used in the last two years of the war to evacuate things and people out of Germany going to base 211 on the Antarctica. Hmm. And uh, that's where they built the, uh, the new base, Neue Berlin or New Berlin. And uh, there, there is a record of 19 test flights and no crashes on the Hanabu 3. The Hanabu 1, that was in the beginning stages of the Hanabu, it was very unstable. They kept crashing on them. So after a little while, they couldn't find pilots to fly it. So they scrapped the 1 and they rebuilt it to create the Hanabu 2, which had a lot more, excuse me, stability. That was 26 meters across and uh, that's 76 feet. And uh, that could do about uh, 6,000 kilometers to 21,000 kilometers, about 13,000 miles an hour. Do you think that those disks are just like scout ships from a mothership? Or do you think those disks could also do long distance space flight? It's obvious that you've done some research <laughs> because <clears throat> scout ships it could very well be because the end of the war, the Allied, when they came in, uh, ran over some of these production facilities of aircraft and other things, they found drawings of a ship they called, it was called the Andromeda, which is the Andromeda craft. And in there, they had uh, the Andromeda, in, uh, Colonel Stevens talked about that too. That was a circular cigar-shaped craft. And it had, it, it was <clears throat> a 455 feet long. Now that's quite considerable. That's uh, aircraft carrier capacity. And it had four uh, the, the propulsion system had four of those Thule engines, or the Aglocke, which it started out as. And uh, they talk about the crew of 130 people. They had four of these flying discs inside of this cigar. So they could be carried with the cigar anywhere and then the ships could leave the cigar and go do things and come back to the cigar. And uh, 130 people was the normal crew on it. And uh, they also had two of the modified 
really early flying discs that they had in there. So this was huge, really huge craft. Now this is something they built. This is not a, a ship that went down. Uh, they found the drawings of it and they found no evidence that they have it actually built while they were in Germany. Though there is uh, papers showing that they may have built it in uh, Antarctica at base 211 or possibly in South America, but I kind of doubt it because it's too big. It needed too much of a building facility. It would be kind of conspicuous. I think they wanted to build that inside the cave that they found in uh, in uh, Neue Schwabenland. I'm sure you're aware of Bob Lazar and his claims about working at Area 51. And I believe he talks about that the engines on those craft are powered by element 151. Do you think yeah. that he's correct about that or mistaken or giving out misinformation and it's really mercury? There was a time when I didn't really believe everything he said, but the thing about it is that he's been constant for 25 years in everything he talks about. The lie detectors, everything works out fine. So I am starting to think that, yes, I think he was telling the truth. Another thing that I uh, make me believe him is that the chairs inside that he called it the sports model. The chairs were too small for people. It had to be a smaller humanoid sitting in there, which could be explained <clears throat> if he talks about the uh, the small grace. Mm -hmm. Then uh, that's probably because they also talk about having those, you know, EB1, EB2, you know, they have those aliens in captivity. So I kind of believe what he's saying. I, I believe that either way, he's telling the truth. That is my total conviction. Mm -hmm. He believes it. And I guess those ships just have a different propulsion system, although it yeah. seems similar. Yeah. I think that, you know, when they come here, they may have different origins. Uh, space is full of life. Speed of light is not a speed limitation. You can go beyond that. All you have to do is just step out of the physical, move in a higher vibration, and then step back into the physical, and you can travel millions of light years in a very short time. The guest that I mentioned earlier said that there is a wormhole near Jupiter, and that's how he believes they, you know, travel those long distances. Yeah. The, the wormholes, uh, it appears, um, while well, even theoretical physicists talk about this, that there are, they're kind of like, they call it wormhole because it goes in one here and then there's this worm going someplace in the universe and you're exiting at the other end. And there is, um, from what I found, is that you can direct those wormholes where you want them to go. And that is done by consciousness. Because we do live in a mind-created universe, according to both uh, theoretical physicists, quantum science, and 
what I've seen is that there is computer language in everything we see around us. And it wasn't put there by us, but it just shows up as an effect of the creation. So you think everything in creation boils down to ones and zeros? Well, that's a tough one to say yes to, but I have to. You mentioned earlier that the Germans were looking into the occult and other cultures for spacecraft. Was that the only thing they were looking into, a spacecraft, or were there other things? Oh, no. They, they were looking into all areas of the occult very deeply because Hitler was a fanatic about it. And many of his uh, generals and high-ranking officers, they got involved with it, and they buried themselves into that research, and with good reason, because in there, thousands of years ago, we knew stuff that we don't know how to do today. So I think there was a good reason for them doing it, especially when they went to Tibet and found the drawings of the Vamana. They made good use of that. I am sure of it. And uh, then when they moved everything down to Neue Berlin in uh, or uh, Base 211 in Antarctica, then, uh, well, there's even... Uh, Here's a statement I wrote down. I wanted, I wanted to make sure I read it off right to you. There was a German Navy Grand Admiral, Karl Dönitz. He was the head of the flying disc program. He stated, the German submarine fleet is proud to having built for the Führer in another part of the world a Shangri-La and in Pregnable fortress. That was the cave in Antarctica. Do you think ETs are walking among us today on the planet? I am quite sure of it. I am absolutely sure of it. Do they naturally look like us or are they shape shifting to look like us? Probably both. Uh, I know some of them look just like us, like the Pleiadians do. They come here, visit, and they're dressed like us, walking down the street, and we'll never know it. So, And I think that the sooner we actually realize that we're not alone, even in the streets, they may be just walking down by us. But they're also telepathic. I have a friend in Texas. He is a... Um, he is a physicist. And he said that when you walk down the street, if you're kind of like in a high spot, so you can see people down below you in the street, send the message out. I can see you. Turn around. I can see you. Find out which one of them on the street turns around and looks at you. He has said, I have been able to do that Twice, he said. Somebody turned around and looked at me. Uh, if they're mm -hmm. telepathic, it's probably, it's probably, it could be, you know? I'd like to try that sometime. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, I've been trying. I haven't had any luck yet, but <laughs> it'd be fun. Have you seen a UFO yourself? Oh, yes, many times. What? You know, when you, when you fly, 
as much as I did, uh, especially at night and on uh, the high altitudes, you see stuff that shouldn't be there. I uh, Even back in Norway, when I was uh, probably about 11, 12 years old, <clears throat> I built a UFO detector that worked fine. And it built around a compass on the fact that when something that creates an anti-gravity effect and it moves through the gravity field, it creates ripples in the gravity field, which would affect a compass needle. So I built everything around a compass. So two, two wires on the, on the compass needle is here, two wires going on each side. And I rigged that through a bell and a battery and a breaker switch. So I turn the breaker switch on and now the circuit is just waiting to get connected. So when if the compass needle move touches one of the wires, the bell goes off and it works. I I saw it go off three times. And I remember twice, two of those times I went outside with binoculars and I saw something. And uh, there were several times my mom told me that uh, <clears throat> that thing up in your bedroom, it went off again. What is it? You know, but that thing is, uh, there's a drawing of it and how you can build your own on broadcast team alpha. If you go in under the picture gallery, you can find it way down there. There's 5,200 pictures. So you may have to look for a bit. Strange pictures that shouldn't exist, but they do. So go visit. Uh, <clears throat> But I one particular incident. I was that was in northern Nebraska. I was on a training flight. I was with uh, giving instrument training to a student, <coughs> and uh, she had a hood on, and uh, so she couldn't see anything but the panel. And I was sitting there on the side. I could see everything, and I saw this thing coming at a forty-five degree angle on the right side, coming in underneath the craft. It flew right underneath me about 400 feet or so. But it looked strange. It wasn't an aircraft. It looked, I, you know, I don't know if anybody else has seen anything like this, but it looked kind of like a skateboard. But it had windows on the side of it. So this really puzzled me. And I haven't talked much about this because nobody else has seen anything like this. And it sounds goofy. But that's what it was. Hmm. Another time I was on a go, I think I was flying through Kansas, going down to the burn center in Houston with somebody from up north in, an, in, a, in a medical uh, emergency flight in a King Air. And we were going in and out of the clouds. And I could see this little pencil coming from the left side of my field of vision, passing right off to the right. Probably took about three seconds to go from the time I saw it on the left side until it was gone on the right. But it looked like a short pencil and uh, had no wings, no nothing, no tail on it, but just phew, right across, maybe around a couple of three miles ahead of the aircraft. And uh, obviously a small cigar. Things happen out there when you fly, you see stuff. Is it that you just don't talk about it so you'll keep your job? It used to be that way. Now, pilots are coming out talking about it. And uh, <clears throat> I would say that decades ago, 
pilots did get fired for talking about stuff like this because they had this stigma that if you see aliens, or I mean, if you see flying saucers, you're nuts. So get out of here. And the um, airlines were intimidated into working that way. What are your thoughts on the Galactic Federation? Well, there's a lot of disinformation in there. And uh, when it talks about, there's one thing that I, I think I'm probably going to say it for the very first time here on your show, and that is that I, we come to Saint Germain. He's part of the Galactic Federation. Where does the word saint come from? Think about that. It's a religious term. Why would a spiritual being way beyond our thinking and our technology be using our spiritual term in his title? I'm not saying that an entity like him may not exist. I think it is. But the term saint, that is a Catholic term. Why would he accept or import that term? I don't know. I'm probably going to get some flack on this one, but that's okay. So you're saying that Saint Germain is an ET? Well, ET goes back to extraterrestrial. So obviously he is not terrestrial. So he must be, but at a higher vibration, he is a spiritual being that has the capability by technology, mind technology to come here, maybe take on a physical body for the purpose of easier communication and whatever he needs to do and then go back to his natural spiritual state. It's interesting that you brought up St. Germain because just very recently I had a guest that was talking about him. And I think there are books as well. You wonder sometimes. You really have to wonder sometimes. And there is, let's say there's 10 channelers out there that channeling St. Germain. And with small variances, they all talk about the same thing. I'm wondering if they watch each other's show and then just recite what they heard. But I think there's some core evidence. There's some core conscious technology behind what he talks about. I think the entity is real. But the description that he comes through down here, I... A lot of the channelers, I'm questioning, but there are some good ones. And there are some others that is good, but they don't want to publicly let people know that they are a channel. In fact, I know because I'm working with one. There is this stigma out there and a lot of people, and I've had that too, that if you start talking too far outside of the box, you lose some of your credibility. You lose your credibility with the people that are still in the box, that's for sure. But some of the people also that have their toe out of the box, they can believe you so far, but beyond that, you lose them. 
And uh, I know I've, I've been in that camp for a while. And I, right now I'm so controversial. I don't really give much anymore. So I'm starting to talk more about things that I have seen and what I know. During our last podcast together, you mentioned time travel. What can you tell us about that? Most people, they, are, they believe that if the government tell you something, that's the truth. So when the government says there is no such thing as time travel, there ain't no time travel. Well, then again, I have read uh, science journals that says, yes, we know how to make a time machine. We know how to do it, but we just don't have the fuel to fuel it yet. They uh, are missing a point. They should consider the most powerful instrument in our world as a fuel source, the mind. Because quantum mechanics tells us that we are living in a mind-created universe. What does a mind create? Thought, mental images, and it creates energy. So if we put the mind to work going into the future or going into the past, we should be able to do that. And uh, these science journals, they get very specific about it. In fact, I, I have a note that I figured you might go here and this, there is um, there's something, there's something that you can do. There's um, a place in China that has become a tourist attraction. There's a tunnel, uh, about a two-mile-long tunnel. It's quite a long tunnel. When people go in and they come out of the tunnel, they lose. Yeah, that, no, they gain about an hour of time. And they just can't explain it. Because clocks going in could be right now for 3.30 uh, here. If I went through the tunnel, it would be 4.30 when I came out. Now, the government says, don't worry about it. It's because of the, the cell towers on each end. They send an erroneous signal. But there is a problem. People with mechanical clocks also gain that hour. There was, a, there was an article. Um, let's see. Uh, there was an article written on it where there was a newspaper man that drove eight times back and forth there in one day. And the eighth time he came through, the sun had gone down and it was late in the evening. When he came back through, the sun was back up again. And he wrote the article. It was, it was written in a Chinese newspaper and then picked up by other newspapers from other countries. So it exists out there. And um, this is something that it is uh, from what I wrote in my note here on it's, uh, I don't speak Chinese, so I'm, um, 
Guizhou province in China. And there are thousands of people that is experiencing this, this time dilation. And uh, it's a real thing. Uh, another short example I'm gonna tell you about. This is actually very verified. Um, in 2003, there was a stock trader in New York that got arrested for insiders trading. His name was Carl, no, Andrew Carlsen. And he had, he started trading stocks with $800. In a few weeks, he made $350 million. He did 126 high-risk trades and never lost one. The uh, regulators, they found out about this and they said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. So they came and arrested him for insider's trading. They, he was hauled into court and uh, Andrew, he told the judge, yeah, he says, I'm really sorry about this because I'm a time traveler from the year 2256. And I read the records of how things worked back here. And I thought it would be a fun thing to participate in. So I went back and I got carried away. He says, I went too far with it. And uh, uh, the judge, of course, didn't believe him. So he put him in jail. And a couple of days later, uh, they said a $1 million bail for him. A couple of days later, somebody came with a $1 million, bailed him out, and they left, and neither one of them ever showed up ever since. This was written up in the newspapers, and also the court records can be read on it. So this was actually verified to the highest level, well, not for the newspaper, but the court records. So things like this happen. I have had some very strange experiences with one electronics device that I have. And uh, it's the same uh, device that Art Bell, you know who he was. Right. Uh, he got a hold of this same device that, uh, that I have. He never dared to turn it on, he said, but I've, I've used it quite a bit in the past. And uh, BBC television found out about this device that I had and also a TV interview that I did in 2003, where I interviewed the man that made it. And you can go to Broadcast Team Alpha, way down at the bottom again, you can see that uh, TV interview where you show the machine and the whole thing, it's there. And, uh, and uh, BBC television came over to the United States to do a TV documentary on time travel. They were gonna do that with Michio Kaku and Green and another theoretical physicist that was uh, unknown to me at the time and myself. So they flew me down to New Orleans and we did the shoot and this TV documentary, gosh, it was shown to a billion people around the world in all English speaking countries. And uh, I have learned a lot about time since then because some of the things that I talked about or that I've seen actually didn't happen. And I learned now that there are different timelines going into the future. At the time I did that TV documentary with BBC television, 
my mind was totally embedded in the corruption of government. And I, on my TV shows, I was exposing that corruption every week. And that's where my mind was. So what I saw was probably would, what would have happened if I had continued that timeline. Hmm. But in uh, 2000, uh, slightly after that, I changed I created a more spiritual timeline for myself. That's, I left all the government corruption behind. I figured they're so corrupt, they can destroy themselves. They don't need my help. And <laughs> so now I went on in a spiritual direction and I created a new timeline for myself with good and better things in it. And that is my explanation that I can think of why those things for the collapse of government all the uh, collapse of the stock market and everything that I saw, it didn't happen, luckily. Now, what is the machine that you have and what does it do? Okay, the, uh, the machine is, is fairly simple. It has a black box with a, he called it a time chip with the, the inventor. He never wanted to talk much about the time chip or what's in it. He said it dilates time. But he didn't want to talk much about it. I guess that's his trade secret. It has a time coil, which I um, wrap around my head. And it has an electromagnet that is about that long, which you place to your solar plexus. And this goes, both of them is wired into the black box. What it does, that magnet is so strong. You can put... Um, you can have it here, let's say on the table right here. You put something on the other end of the table and boing, it will go right to the magnet. Very strong. And, and uh, what I did, I put it on. It goes through the, the time chip. It sets up a plasma bubble around you. You can't see the bubble, but it's there. Imagine if you had a Kirillian photo machine, or if you had um, infrared, you probably would be able to see some of it. And inside that bubble, you could travel where your mind would lead you. One example was when I, I was doing it, I was walking down the street, and I saw myself walking down the street because I kind of was looking for evidence, something that I could attach myself to. And I saw a, um, a newspaper stand, you know, those automatic ones, you put a quarter in it, you pull the newspaper out. And I could read the newspaper, but it was six months in advance. So <clears throat> another thing is what I did, I was sitting at the, and I got pictures of this is actual evidence of time travel and time slippage. If you go to broadcast team alpha, I think it's uh, page 15 or 17 on the picture gallery. There's two pictures next to each other. I was sitting in front of the computer one day and I took a, I was watching a uh, video from a newspaper over in Europe, my hometown actually. And I took a screenshot of it. Quite a while later, I, sat down at the same computer, went on the same uh, video feed from that newspaper. And I went through my mind technique and 
I was trying to go back to the same time that I uh, took the first picture. I tried the exact same time. It's what I was aiming for. And I was sitting there, and I remember everything just kind of disappearing on me, but I did take a screenshot. And I have the photo. I was the timestamp at the time did not quite match the uh, exact time that the first one was taken. I missed it by a minute and five seconds. So the pictures are different. In one picture, you have leaves on the trees. The other picture have no leaves on the trees. One picture is, you can see there's been rain because the, the road is really wet. The other, the road is perfectly dry. And the thing about it is that in one minute and five seconds, I doubt that the roads would dry up totally or lose all the leaves in one minute and five seconds. I. I've been trying to get somebody to verify for me that there is no dislocations in the timestamp where that is. And I can't find anybody to do it. And um, I've been talking about experts that can do this kind of forensics. And when they ask me, what kind of picture is it? If I mention time travel, they don't want nothing to do with it. If you and I were standing in a room together and you were wearing the machine and you turned it on, would you disappear in front of me? That I don't know because the times when I made this work, I've always been alone. And uh, maybe that has something to do with someone else observing. I'm not sure. <clears throat> But I also, um, well, I've been by myself. I tried it back in Omaha, tried it in Phoenix, uh, tried it in Tucson. The three times that um, in different cities, location doesn't make any difference. I don't know if even ley lines have any influence on them. It probably could, but I don't know. I think it is more of a travel of the mind. I find but I have, that. yeah, Sorry. let me say one uh, more thing real quick. And that is, this is not a toy because there are people that has been using this and they're missing. They never showed up again. In the back of uh, one of my books, I write about how to do this actually without the machine. Because once you get used to knowing and believing it is possible, you can set up your own bubble and you can actually do this by yourself. It's interesting that Art Bell was unwilling to turn it on. He may have, but he said on the air one time, he says, I'm sitting here looking at it and I don't dare to turn it on. <laughs> Did the inventor just send you one? No, we, we bought it from him. <clears throat> they were pretty cheap back then. Uh, I think I paid about 400 bucks or something like that for it. Are you aware of any other anecdotes about time travelers? Well, I mentioned that people are missing. There is several, actually, that 
Stephen Gibbs, the guy that made the machine, he told me about this and he says, I don't talk about this much. He says, because, you know, it scares people. Well, yeah, it should. Uh, there were one young man, he was living at home, going to college. He bought one of the machines and he brought it home and uh, he went upstairs uh, in the afternoon when he got the package. And in the evening, uh, his mom came up to get him down for dinner. She walked into the bedroom and there, he wasn't there, but this contraption was laying in the middle of the bed. The time coil was there, the box was there and the magnet was there and he was gone. So she says, oh, you know, it's just, he went out. Well, <clears throat> that night he didn't come back and next day they started worrying. So they uh, filed a uh, missing person report and he never showed up anywhere ever since. So I, I guess my guess is something happened that brought him to a different time where he was not able to get back. He didn't have the machine to come back. I wonder if he took it off or what happened because it was still yeah. in his bedroom. Yeah. There's several other stories that he told me about people that uh, one guy, he had the machine in his truck. That was, he said, back in the 1980s. And he was driving the truck around, but it was a futuristic truck. And people wondered, where in the world did you get this truck? So these are stories that the inventor told me because I got to know him fairly well. You know, he, we were both living in Nebraska and fairly close, and we had dinner a few times. It's amazing. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. Here, in the back of the book, uh, there's a whole chapter on time travel that I wrote. And uh, it explains how we can actually do this by conditioning the mind. And uh, there, is, there is also people, other people out there teaching time travel. So um, I don't know what they're doing necessarily, but uh, it is, it's a concept that has been proven for the ones that look into the evidence and not just believing the dogma of government. I've been recently reading a report about the Monroe Institute, and within that report, they're talking about time travel. Have you read that report or do you know anything about the Monroe Institute? Uh, not much. I, I haven't read that report. I have, I know very little about the Monroe Institute. I know they're doing wonderful work, especially with uh, developing and getting a good understanding of what's going on in the mind there. And also near death experiences. They research that this, they're doing phenomenal work, but I haven't really studied it much. You just showed us your book. What's the title of it and where can people get it? Okay. This is <clears throat> Spiritual Science, Higher Conscious Thinking, and How to Access the Universal Consciousness. Or if you go to Amazon and put my name in there, it will show up. And in here is where I teach people how to use their mind in ways that you normally would think would be impossible. And uh, I, 
I write about a lot of the things that I've been able to do because I've had some phenomenal training by some of the giants that I'm standing on their shoulders from because uh, one of them was Richard Welch. And I used to travel around the country teaching a mind development course where we were teaching people how to assimilate information out of a book at the rate of 50 to 100,000 words per minute with 95% retention. And it's called the Zox Pro Training Course. And you can find it out there on the, on the internet. But um, it's alive and well. And uh, I, I used to teach this, and it was so much fun. I, I must have read over 1,000 books over the, over the years just by... You, you go through a book, two pages a second, but you don't read it. You just let the subconscious mind take a mental picture of it, bypass the conscious mind and put it directly into long-term memory. Later on, you do like you normally do. You ask questions to the subconscious mind, say, what was so-and-so doing on this and that incident? You ask a question as a trigger and the subconscious mind will bring it out. That's kind of what long-term memory is. And when you understand that, it becomes more accessible to you. If you don't believe it's possible, you're going to have a harder time. It'll still work, but it'll take you a little longer because you got to get some form of acceptance in your mind for things to work. I guess sometimes we believe stuff, but we've got to actually experience it to move beyond yeah. belief into knowing. Yeah, and some of the stuff we believe isn't so. <laughs> can you give us another example of some of the unbelievable things that we can do with our mind? Um, eidetic memory. That's a term that very few people know what it is. Eidetic memory is when you actually, when you remember something, you don't just think of it. You see the picture of it in front of you. And uh, I know actually two people. Uh, one guy, uh, Warren Buffett, he has eidetic memory. It was really goofy. When, when uh, you could ask him something and he sit there and looks down and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, they talk about that in so-and-so book. It's at page 237, at a right-hand column down at the bottom. He said they explain exactly that. He's sitting, looking down into the book, but there's a problem. I can't see the book because there is no book there. He sees it because he read it. And uh, that amazed me every time. But um, I had glimpses of that. And uh, back when I was running around teaching the, uh, the mind development course, the SOX Pro course, uh, I had quite a few times glimpses of it, but it, that's something that has to be practiced. Otherwise, it'll go away on you. And when that happens, it's a phenomenal experience. Your life will never be the same. You'll understand that, oh, man, oh, man, this mind can do amazing things, just that we haven't been told that we can. You've mentioned it a couple times, but if people want to know more about what you're up to, they go to broadcastteamalpha.com. Yeah, broadcastteamalpha.com. That is the uh, the radio or video show that Nori Love and I are doing. 
uh, every Tuesday evening, actually in about two hours, we're going live. And uh, we have a, a weekly show there and we put other videos on there too. And in there, broadcastteamalpha.com, you can go to picture gallery and you see 5,200 unbelievable pictures that shouldn't exist, but they do. And uh, otherwise, we have a mastermind we have put together of incredible people. And we bend the laws of physics sometimes when we should, uh, uh, when we want something done. I think I mentioned that last time, talked about the mastermind a little bit, where uh, especially when two or more minds are united in harmony, they create a third mind that has the potential mind power of the two or more of them multiplied by each other. And that is powerful. So uh, we created rain out of basically clear skies in a matter of one, one hour to put out some forest fires in Northern California about two, three months ago. Mm. And uh, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. So if people want to join us and uh, check it out, send us an email to themastermindconnection at gmail.com. Augie, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Positive message. Well, I would say we know, we don't suspect, but we know we are living in a mind-created universe. Our mind in connection with the universal mind creates everything around you. That means that if you change your mind, you're able to change your environment and everything in your existence around you. Set yourself a goal in the future that is so big that it scares the daylight out of you. And then visit that goal every day. Go back and forth, back and forth. Feel it. Live it already own it know it is yours you just don't have it yet love it into existence see other people enjoying it with you when you do this you get drawn up that timeline to it do whatever you can to help make it happen you don't care where the resources come from in order to accomplish it the universe will take care of that for you you just look at the final product Immerse yourself in it. And there is a very good reason why you should be able to walk into it when that time-coded event happens that you place in the future. Augie, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. Oh, I love it. This is so much fun. I'll tell you this. Uh, yeah, this, this uh, you got an incredible. I remember from the last one reading all the 655 uh, messages afterwards it was wonderful you have an incredible audience i tell you that's you got if i wore a hat i would take it off <laughs> you're right i have an amazing audience and if anybody hasn't seen that prior podcast that we did together it's number 630 and it's titled secrets of the universe christianity and society all right Augie, yeah. thanks again and have a great rest of your evening Thank you, thank you. And in the words of Spock, live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast.
I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.